This episode is brought to you in part by TSMA Consulting, the entertainment industry's leading social media firm. You've heard on the podcast from the top people in entertainment how vital a well-curated social media presence can be for your career. Dropping Character is proud to be partnering with TSMA Consulting, a globally recognized social media firm that can help you make sure your social media represents the quality of your work. I've worked with them personally, and man, did I learn a lot. If you do sign up, make sure you tell them Robbie sent you. My peoples, I'm coming to you direct, breaking the fourth wall here. I want to thank all of you for coming along on this journey with me and listening to season one of the podcast. You know, it's been an eye-opening experience for me getting to talk with all these people in different walks of life with different perspectives and ways of making it happen and getting ahead in this business. And I hope it's, it's brought some value to you in your life. And if it has, we ask that you do two things. Number one, on Apple Podcasts, you can rate and leave a review. Now, this goes a long way in helping with the algorithms and allowing more people to listen to the podcast so we can continue to make these for you. Number two, share the podcast on your social medias, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Share with a friend, send a text, man. Check in with that person who you know was struggling maybe a year ago. You send them an email. You send them a text. You say, hey, check out this podcast. It's been helping me. Word of mouth is the most powerful marketing tool we have. On January 3rd, we're going to drop a bonus episode for you guys. A recap with me and my producer on season one. And uh, we're going to answer some of your questions, whether it's the, the TV show Heels related, entertainment related. Something one of our guests touched on in an episode that you'd like to know more about. Agents, managers, uh, how to maximize your networking, right? These are all questions that we have. And we're going to try and get to all of them. So if you have questions, you can message us on our Twitter or Instagram or email us directly at droppingcharacter at gmail.com. All right. Enough with the chitter chatter. Let's get on with the show. Big kiss. Mwah. This is Robbie Ramos, and you're listening to Dropping Character. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD cocktail. Dude, first of all, I got to say, it's it's amazing to have the both of you on uh, at this point in your lives, man. It feels like, you know, this might be a culmination of a lot of hard work that you guys have put in. Um, I want to go back to the beginning. When when did you guys uh, know you wanted to be filmmakers? Uh, uh, Ryan, you can go first and then we'll go with Kaz. Well, um, when I was maybe like uh, 12 or 13, I, I was really into comic books um, at the time. And back then I really wanted to be a comic book artist. Um, and I was drawing a lot and um, I was I was pretty good, but I kind of hit the plateau at a certain point. And, um, and then I started to become more interested in the kind of storytelling. And, uh, and, and I started like writing short stories um, instead. And around that same time, I was also skating a lot. And I was, and like, I grew up in the Bay Area. And so that is, has a huge skate community. And San Francisco is like a big giant skate park. And there were a lot of like cool uh, videos that were coming out uh, from there, like skate videos. Um, and some of them were directed by like Spike Jones. And so I got really interested in those and for the skateboarding, but then eventually started to be more interested in the filmmaking part than the skateboarding. 
And so I kind of started to combine my interest in storytelling with filmmaking and then started doing like these scripted short films just with, uh, with my friends when I was like 16, 17 years old, um, just using like the DV camera and going in the backyard and, and doing like these kind of, I mean, they're actually pretty sophisticated ideas, but, but they, yeah, they were, they, were, they were really fun. And like that, honestly, the thing that just attracted me the most uh, was just the, the joy of being with your friends and, and making a movie and creating. Um, that's kind of a feeling that I've been chasing ever since, you know, as I've become professional and kind of gotten on bigger and bigger projects, it's always still about just trying to recapture that feeling of being with friends in the backyard, just having laughs and, and making, making art. Um, so, so yeah, around like, around like late teens is when I started to become more serious. And I think I wrote my first feature script when I was about 19. And then, um, the second feature script I wrote. I actually ended up making it for like five thousand bucks, like just a DV feature. Oh, basically. Whoa, 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 whoa. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We're gonna go. We're gonna go yeah, into that the, for that's sure. That's the origin story, and then mm-hmm. yeah, Tazzy wants to, to tell his story too. Yes. No, I do want to tell my story too. <laughs> I also want to tell my story. Now, what's up, guys? It's really a pleasure to be talking to Robbie. And look, the, the inside baseball is something that we're really passionate about. I think that everyone finds their way to Hollywood in a different way, and they find their ways to storytelling in a different way. And so, for me, you know, it, it's I think the same as for so many people. It's really that uh, they tra- films are transportive. You know, it, I say this a lot, and I feel pretty strongly about this that movies are a chance to live other lives than your own. Uh, and that's one of the great gifts is that you sort of start to realize like you live this finite existence, but through cinema, you could live a, a thousand lives, you know, over the course of your life. And so I was probably like, I mean, not probably, I was literally 11. I was homesick from school. My mom's working. She's actually the first female sound mixer in the union. So she was like around movie sets, but doing a lot of like documentary stuff. Anyway, so she was out shooting or working and I dragged the old glass CRT, like the heavy ass TV into my bedroom. I had it at the foot of my bed and she'd left like a stack of DVDs um, sitting on the counter. And I watched essentially back to back alone at the age of 11. I watched City of God and Amelie. And these are both like incredible foreign films. I'm probably way too young to be watching them both seriously <laughs> R-rated. But I just remember as I like watched these movies, I just disassociated from my body. I was in Brazil for like two and a half hours. And that was like a holy experience, you know? And I just sort of realized when, I, when my mom got home, I was still like in that, those worlds. And I said like, who makes movies? Like, is that a job that you, I never occurred to me? You know, I'd watched movies all my life until that point. And I was just like, these are just fun stories. But then I, that there was this like, everything was coalescing. And I'm like, is there like a job you have where you like direct, you make movies? And she's like, oh, that's the director. And I was like, well, I want to do that. You know, cause I want to have people feel that feeling that I just had. Like, I want to, I want to control and like play in that sandbox and have that kind of mastery of form. So from there, it was pretty much just like I borrowed uh, my dad's still camera. I made like stop motion Lego animations. I just started to figure out like the technical aspects, you know, and we lived in this golden age where like mini DV had just come out. And that was such an important, like we don't just carry around like pocket supercomputers anymore. Like we literally had to get the tapes, put them in the camera, shoot it, get a capture card, run it back in real time, like capture the footage, like learn how to edit. And that was such an important thing was that like we just had access to that you know at age 14 like we could go and like pirate sony vegas video and borrow a friend's computer i mean i I literally just watched eternals with my childhood best friend my whole family back home in the bay area but with his parents and i'm like 
we shot all our early movies in their backyard, like literally like from the age of seven onwards. I met him when I was six. And then to go and walk into Eternals with these people who were like, literally were like, Hey, can we spray paint this like wall in the backyard? They're like, as long as you paint over it, you know, it was just like, that was the process and, and just making movies with your friends. It's a really transported place. So from there, I, you know, all through high school, I was making movies. I made a zombie film in high school that had a hundred students in it. And the, the principal is a zombie and he punches through a fake wall and kills a student. And this is on YouTube. It has like millions of views now. Uh, it's called zombie high school. Shout out zombie high school. But yeah, I mean, it was just like the process of creating is such a joy. It's everything Ryan said. It's just like nothing beats that thrill of like, it's like playing jazz. You're inventing something in real time with a group of other people. And when it's all working, it's the best. And so I went to NYU film school and I always knew that that was the only place I was going to go. So that's the, that's the short, that's, that's the origin story up till age 17. I think we, Ryan and I both got shit around like, yeah, teenagehood. Well, well, so so let's talk a little about that. Your background yeah, with sure. your relationship with each other. Um, you guys are cousins, right? Yeah, that's right. First cousins. Okay, and 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 uh, and was this like a passion that you guys shared together, or did you discover that you had these passions later on? Yeah, I had no choice. I, I had no choice but to start making. No, no, it was truly though. Like I have a very distinct memory of this. Like Ryan had gotten like a green sheet, and he had iMovie, you know, and he's literally like dude, I just figured out like green screens. And just for the record, there's a photo just to date Ryan. There's a photo of Ryan holding me as, an, as a literal newborn baby. So like we're a little bit eh, apart in age, but same generation. And so like when he was literally sitting there like noodling with the green screen, I was like the actor in this movie. It was about like flying. We went to, it was like, it was just crazy, but we were discovering a lot of this technology um, in real time. So yeah, we, we definitely knew we loved cinema, but we approached it in different ways, so. I think that Kaz just looked up to me so much that when I started doing it, then he just Hell he yeah. had to do it too. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. How old are you guys, man? Well, drop it on, man. Yeah, yeah, drop that bomb on him. I'm I'm over twenty, over twenty and below sixty. <laughs> <laughs> We're keeping it keeping it vague, dude. I well, Ryan Ryan recently hit, Ryan recently hit a big milestone, so you know, I don't oh, know how you feel about that. Yeah, but I uh, I am thirty one. Recently. Um, yeah, it feels like no longer like the Wonderkin. I was very, uh, I lived a very fun and exciting twenties, um, and had a lot, of, had a lot of fun basically getting that chance to actually go and, and be a commercial director, be a documentary director, travel the world, and just you know, we wrote, we got hired to do Eternal when I was still in my twenties, you know. So it was really this moment. It's just been that long to make a movie like Eternals, um, but we both grew up loving cinema for sure. Right. Right. And then did you both go to school for for film or uh, how did this work? Ryan, you can take the lead on that, too, since you're the older one. Yeah, <laughs> I. Uh, so I was really just a terrible, a really bad student in high school. Um, I actually just barely graduated. I think my my GPA was like one point. Same brother. And, same, um, same. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not funny because in, in grade school, I went to like uh, Catholic school. And, um, and when you're, when you're in there, then it's, it's like a private school. So then, you know, they just basically <laughs> pass you no matter what. <laughs> and so then, but then I went to public school when I was, uh, when I was in, I went to public school in high school. And then, so after, in the first year, I think I, I like flunked, I flunked PE and flunked like auto, like all these easy classes. Right. And then they're like, oh yeah, you have, you have to do them again. And I was like, wait a second, what do you mean? Like, you don't just, <laughs> you don't just pass me. And so I was the kind of a wake up call. So anyway. I, uh, yeah, I was, wasn't a great student. Um, and then after, uh, I got out of high school, 
I um, decided to go to a community college, um, which was kind of a place that, that you go if you're kind of a townie and you don't know exactly what you want to do. And that's where I actually took my first filmmaking class. Um, and that's where I made like the DV shorts and then we would present them to the class. And it was like such a thrill. And so that's when I like knew, okay, this is what I want to do professionally. And so I, then I went to the Academy of Art College in San Francisco, um, which was like, you know, stepping up to the big leagues or that's how I felt. And, but like, w I only went there there for one semester and kind of realized it wasn't really for me. So I actually dropped out. And then the next semester, I, um, what was it I about it, Ryan? What was money. it about, about the, the university well, that you kind of felt didn't, didn't jive with you? I mean, I think that their program in particular was just really young at the time and they were still working on a lot of kinks. And for me, I actually had, it was like a, like a, a little bit of a roundabout, um, way to get in there. Cause like I was, I went to community college and I was making stuff. And then I actually started kind of working a little bit and I was like doing freelance editing and like actually getting paid. And I had like a, I had a, um, developed a skill set by the time I went to, to this, the school, but by the time I went to film school, but they just wanted, they wanted you to go through all the steps. So like, for example, I got put into like intro to editing and I'd already been working as a freelance editor. And it kind of like started out being like, this is a computer, this is a keyboard. And so like, and I kind of begged them to be like, look, this is just not really, I'm not getting a lot out of this. And even the instructor was sort of like, I don't really know what to tell you. I'm not going to be able to really teach you much. Um, but, uh, but they just, they were like, no, you have to go through the system. It has to be that way. And I just kind of, um, just started to figure out, like, it's just, I could just be making stuff and writing stuff and doing stuff rather than just sitting here, like learning something that I already know. Um, and I, and then I met some, some people that I really clicked with and we started talking about making a movie like during that first semester. And then, so when it came time, the next semester, I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, let's just, let's go do it. Like, just give it a shot. And so, uh, so, so that's what we did. And then I just never, never really looked back. What was that first? Uh... Ryan was so talented. They, they offered to make him like teach the whole Academy of Art. They were like, we want you to be the Dean of the film school. And he like turned it down. Wow. It's crazy. They're like, we want you yeah. to be a teenage, yeah. Teenage You're Dean. Prodigy. Yeah. Um, and anyway, so we ended up, we, yeah, we, that's we were my, actually wrote, show. um, yeah, we wrote a new show called team Dean. No, <laughs> yeah. That, but that, that's it. We tell the story in a, in a nutshell. It's like, you know, they look PTA dropped out of NYU after like one semester, you know, this stuff happens. After like one and I, I, I literally just did the, I just like right before you guys, I was talking to a class at NYU and I talked to a lot of students there, which is my alma mater right at a film school. And one of the first things I always say to them is like, look, the, everything about film school and NYU, like everything you need to know about movies, you could Google, like you could literally Google this stuff and learn it online. That's not what you're going to get out of this experience. What you're going to get out of this experience is these relationships, relationship building and community building, you know, and that's something I always tell like people and you're like, Oh, should I go to film school? Is it essential? Like it worked for me, but not for the same, for the same reasons Ryan said, like I've been making movies for years. And when I showed up to NYU, it was like, I know how to turn a camera on. I know how to three point light. Like I know how to do these technical things. But the difference was that what I, I was able to do was to run with those and to say like, there was a runway there where people could recognize like at film school, you can like, well, you can you can skip into a more advanced division. And I just don't think those opportunities were available at the Academy of Art. Right. You know? and, and NYU, Kaz, with you and NYU. I, I, so just to give you a little background on my thing, um, I, I, I was a, a New York stage actor for about 10 years there, my whole 20s. And um, I actually went to the NYU, like, you know, one of those things that you do when you're first starting out, you're taking all the jobs you can. They were doing a directing class at an NYU class uh, 
dude directing yeah actor. dude yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 who was your professor was it joan Horvath? Man, i don't remember dude. <laughs> that'd be I, too good I, it was actually yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i took it that was class actually like a like a, an audition notice right um uh, mm-hmm. that they put out and and as the actor you just kind of go in and you're just kind of basically a set piece man you're you're doing the scene but it's not really about you right um but i i, I was just kind of fascinated by that because i had never seen directing in that light you know what i mean because as an actor I know what it is. You go into class, you learn a monologue, you learn scenes. But with with directing, it just seemed like such an alien thing to me to see these all these directors in there, you know, and and we're doing the scene. It's not about us and we're fucking actors. So we think it's all about us. Right. Um, but it's interesting. Like, I, 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 I feel like um, a school like NYU that has such a big reputation and 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 can bring you th- those contacts that you're talking about. Right. Because I guess maybe a smaller school like Ryan was talking about, right. it's it doesn't have the same pool, the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. This this is this this is what I'll say, and this is I I have a lot of love for for my school and a lot of love for college in general. I think it's a really important experience for young people if you can afford to find that time in your life to, to chase it because it's just a it's a time to play and experiment just as an artist. But in particular, what I always say, it's like better schools aren't necessarily like inherently a better experience. What they do is they attract the kind of people who think they belong at these places, whether that's a fallacy or a self-fulfilling prophecy, I will not say, but it's, that's the problem or the, the thing. You get a lot of people who think that they belong at this particular place. And so you're meeting other people like that, um, which is really interesting. And, you know, the first thing I think, you know, Ryan would say is like also the, the, the type of students you have at these places, even at NYU, you know, like 90% of those people are not making movies anymore because they were just figuring it out, you know, and, and I think you right away, you start to see in Hollywood, in cinema, you know, on a movie set, certain people that you're like, oh, wow, like, I love working with you or you have some spark or even as an actor, when an actor walks into a room in an audition, they just have something that makes you want to watch them. Um, yeah, I mean, right away, as soon as we jumped on this call, it was like, oh, this is going to be a fun, a fun podcast. Like we knew it right away because you have that thing, you know, and I think that that's something that is hard to explain sometimes. Um, right. People don't and then what that. happens after college? Right. Because I'll just speak from my personal experience. You go to school for acting. They don't teach you the business side. Right. How to how to turn your talent into money. Right. And so uh, I, I kind of skimmed a little bit through some of your what you guys have done i know you got into commercials was that something that you did directly after to to make money to kind of uh start to pay the bills a little bit yeah i'll work into that and ryan i mean ryan we both found our way around in different ways the funny little connection is ryan and i both shot a shitload of weddings like ryan edited wedding videos after you know after when he was young and in his 20s and i literally Man, for like almost two years, every Saturday, I would shoot like a crazy fancy wedding in New York City on my like Canon 5D. I would buy like I put on my friend's suit and just like hobnobbed with uh, very interesting different people. And, and I'll say, you know, not only did it like put me through school, like that was a hugely important reason why I was able to stay at NYU, but it was also just like a great education in making friends with large groups of strangers again and again and again it was like charisma school like you literally had to walk in and be like okay here's 10 groomsmen i have to now like get them to like me because i have to hang out with them for the next 12 hours and shoot them so that was it was a really fascinating thing i don't know if i would do it again but i definitely recommend that kind of an industry you know that was my 
that was my waitress job, you know, where I was grinding and just like waking up and doing this thing that allowed me, like you said, to do my art on the weekdays. Um, and that was hugely important. Dude, I shot bar mitzvahs. I gaffed uh, bowling commercials for $50 a day. Like I've done everything you could do on a movie set from PA to sound mixer, you know, and that was a, a great education in and of itself because it's all about, you know, the vision and not having this ego of saying, well, I'm the director, so I don't, I don't move these chairs, you know. Although once you get into the union, you'll get in trouble for moving the chairs. But yeah, commercials for sure, they're, they're a gift. You know, if you can find yourself in that industry, I was very lucky. I had my thesis film played a film festival in LA, a friend of a friend went and saw it. And he was like, hey, do you guys do commercials? Uh, and I was 21 years old at the time. I just graduated college and I was like, yeah, of course. And I Googled like how to direct a commercial and literally. And who, who was this friend in the industry? Was he a producer? Was he an agent? No, this was a literally a dude my age who had just graduated from USC who had an idea for an app. And he was like, I'll have this app and I, I think it's going to be a hit. It's people are going to meet and they're going to date on their phones. And I'm like, that is a terrible idea. It will never work, but you have $5,000. I will totally direct this commercial. And we literally shot five days on a $5,000 budget. Like I didn't make any money. We like put everything into this commercial and it was like pretty good. I'm like proud of this thing. And it was for this app called Tinder. And it became everything that Tinder is today, this multi-billion dollar corporation, but they were really loyal. And as they grew, we really got to grow with them. And then, you know, I got a call from Evan Spiegel, CEO of Snapchat. He was like, dude, I saw the stuff you're doing for Tinder, like do that for us. And so we did Snapchat's first commercial. And I mean, they're all our age, you know, they were all like just out of college. And so I really spent a lot of time in this like very unique time and place um, in the sort of the second great dot-com boom, which is a lot of creativity, artists working directly with CEOs, like direct to client, what they call it now. And it was just like a fun time, you know, fun time to make stuff that was different, fun time to get paid to make art. And then most importantly, have time to write your stuff on the side. That's something I tell a lot of people. It's like what we had then, I mean, even what we have now is a laptop and an internet connection. And if you're listening to this, you probably have that. And so you just need the energy. You need the time to, to go and do that work. You know, and I was very lucky to have um, work in this industry that I didn't hate, that I was still making relationships, but I had that time to really work on the scripts and the stories and the things I wanted to do. Um, and that's really where Ryan and I came together. Well, R Ryan, I want to speak a little about what you were saying. You said you, 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 you dropped out of uh, uh, yeah. the, the Academy of Art University. And then you you started making uh, yeah. your own films, yeah. What was that first yeah. film? Was it something you connected? No, with definitely. Or, or it was just so. It was so. I wrote my first script. I wrote when I was like nineteen, and it was kind of this like drama, you know, that was um just it was kind of like um uh, ordinary people sort of like a, a spin on that. Um, and then the second one, I it was something that I really wanted to make. So I just had to think about like, well, what do I have access to, and what are what I what I could actually make. A movie with you know and so at the time i was like st still living in a small town called benicia um and i had a lot of my friends from high school were still around there and i had um these two friends that were basically like these kind of like small time pot dealers and one of them lived in his he lived in a trailer behind his parents house and they would always i would just go up go over there and like hang out in the trailer while they were like bagging up their weed and like getting all ready and um and they just had like this whole like kind of like like shtick, you know, and like they had a lot of banter and it was like kind of funny. And, and but they also, also knew they had like a lot of, you know, challenges in their life. Like he, he didn't want to live in a trailer behind his parents' house, but it's just where he was at in his life. And so anyway, so I was like, huh, this is like kind of an interesting story. 
And um, like I've got this set that's a trailer and there's a house there. And then I started to think about other people who have apartments and blah, blah, blah. And basically, I, I just wrote this kind of story that was um, sort of based on their relationship. Um, and uh, but then the, the, the premise of the movie is like it's, it's two friends, best friends who are small time five dealers. And then at the beginning, one of their girlfriends gets pregnant. And then it threatens to upend their whole friendship and their whole business. And they're just kind of navigating that in their early 20s. Um, and so I made this movie for like 5,000 bucks. And this is around the time of like Dogma 95 when I was like really big, um, like all the Danish filmmakers doing all these like crazy DV movies. And so we shot it like a Dogma 95 movie, which basically means like all uh, natural light and 100% handheld. And, and it became like an improv movie, you know, like there was a script but it was very much kind of like how Larry David does it, you know, like there's a script, but we just kind of ripped off the script and improv and, and just, um, and so I just had ended up acquiring about 300 hours of footage for this, like, you know, 90 minute movie. And then, um, and then just, yeah, put it together. And I spent like, you know, whatever it was, six months um, editing that movie. And um, yeah, and the, and the film, so the filmmaking process was incredibly educational and fun, but the, the editing process was probably really, where I started to learn like storytelling, you know, cause having to take all that stuff and distill it down and try to figure out how to shape the movie. And, and then also realizing like how much you can influence it by making like little um, uh, adjustments here and there. That was a real, um, that was a big like eye opener, I guess. And um, so I made that movie and, um, and it came out pretty good, you know, but it was just like a $5,000 feature. So there's only so much that you're gonna do with that. But I started to get work after that as an editor. Um, and like Kaz said, I, I was editing wedding videos for many, many years. But in the same time, at the same time, I was writing a bunch of stuff. And I was thinking about like, well, how, how am I going to make movies for a living? Um, and what I, the model that I really looked at as the independent filmmaker and people like Jim Jarmusch and everyone who was like doing it with essentially just having like financiers who were putting up the capital. So then that became my kind of goal of like, I need to find my um, financiers, my, my guys who are going to just guys or girls who are going to pay for my movies. Um, and, uh, and around that same time, I was playing a lot of poker and, um, and just like hanging out in casinos and just was really like involved in, in the poker scene because poker was really big at the time. And through that, I discovered, um, the online poker community and I found like all these kids who were like 19, 20 years old and they were making like a million dollars a month playing online poker. And I was like, wow, this is the greatest untapped resource of independent film financing, you know, like, and so I just decided like, I'm gonna infiltrate this online community. I'm gonna become friends with them. And then they're gonna be, they're gonna pay for all my movies. And that was, that became my goal. And so over the course of like a year or so, I just was like, right. you know, meeting a lot of these guys um, online and then eventually started meeting them in person and, and developed some really good friendships with some very successful high stakes pros. And then that ultimately led to uh, a group of poker pros putting together a budget for me to make a feature length documentary about online poker. And so that um, was kind of my first experience, mm -hmm. like going out, raising all the money um, and having like a real budget to make something, something real. And it was still a documentary, obviously not scripted, but, um, but yeah, that was about a three year process. And the movie was called uh, Bet Raise Fold. And, uh, and yeah, we, we just, um, that was the first experience, just like making a whole movie and then releasing it into the world and having strangers watch this movie and, um, and, uh, and, and have it distributed. So that was like, um, my foray in independent film and around that. And then after that, basically I got like a bunch of work 
in the gaming industry doing like short documentaries about poker pros and this company called poker stars which is a huge online poker site they sent me all over the world like i would just go um i did we did about like 30 or something videos about their poker pros and at the time online poker was banned in the us so i just went everywhere international like went all over europe went to canada mexico like everywhere just doing these like little short documentaries with these guys and that was essentially like my full-time job for like two-ish years and it was like it was a lot of fun and i had a blast and i got to travel with two of my best friends through the sound mixer and my dp and um and then but then you know i just kind of realized like how many videos can you make about guys staring at a computer clicking a mouse and around that same time is when kaz uh was kind of getting burnt out on his commercials so he uh approached me about writing a script together that we could go uh, make ourselves um which is kind of the next major chapter of our of our film story right okay so let's talk about that let's let's roll right into that man that was that was great dude i could tell you guys have been doing interviews just boom rocking and rolling i love it man um yeah so talk to me about that what what is it that happens now now before we we go into that actually i do want to touch a little base on on some of the documentaries that you shot kaz because when when did that that kind of switch for you with the commercials happen where you said, you know what, I, I kind of want to lay off the commercials for a little bit, go do these documentaries? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's like a privilege to be in that position, obviously, as anyone can say. And I was lucky to be, you know, attacking commercials really seriously. It's a great place to perfect your art form. I mean, you get to play with really big toys on a big scale. You really master the casting process and really you know, people may not say this, but it's really an incredible uh, boot camp for Hollywood because you are pitching constantly, you are meeting people constantly, you're developing relationships, you know, you're making little tiny movies and I'm spending a hundred days on set a year as a commercial director, you know, all over the world and, and spending big budgets. So no, it's, it's definitely, if you can chase that, there's nothing wrong with it at all. It was really, there was like a very specific moment that I will never forget. I was on a beach in Hawaii shooting a credit card commercial for Chase Bank. And I remember like, we had like, you know, it's a union job, it was crazy big. We have like dolly track on a beach, which if you've ever shot a beach, you know that that's like the hardest and most expensive thing you can do because sand cannot get in. It's just like a whole nightmare. So I remember sitting there waiting for them to like get the sand off the track and being like, this is very, this is strange. I found myself in a strange place. And this is also in 2015 at the height of the refugee crisis. So this is literally like children are washing up on shore dead in Greece. And I'm like sitting on a beach in Hawaii, like shooting close-ups of a credit card. And that's just not why I got into stories. It's never why I wanted to tell stories. And I remember thinking that and we wrapped that commercial, I basically got the uh, cinematographer, the producer, the editor, people who I knew had just like gotten paid on this commercial and who I actually went to NPU film school with. And I basically said, let's go to Greece for a month. And let's go make a story that matters, you know, tell a story that really matters about the world. And, and my personal mission was just, you know, I've been reading these headlines of this like cataclysmic event that was happening, is still happening six years later. And I wanted to know about the people, you know, involved. Like this is not just like a headline mass of bodies moving west. This is a mother and a father and a sister and people who are basically trying to live a better life. And I wanted to know why um, they had chosen to take these journeys. And so we went to Greece, we went to Leros and Lesbos and Athens and we basically told this story and we made this film. There was no client, there was no like agency paying for this, it was just artists in Greece. And the film was called Refuge. And uh, it's a 20 minute documentary, it's available online. And that was really a film that changed my life because like I said, there was no one had asked us to make this, you know. And what I really realized is 
you don't need permission to make a difference. You can really go and get that camera and you can tell a story and you can try to make the world a little bit better with your storytelling. And I think that's the responsibility of, of all artists in some way. Um, and so that film ended up playing South by Southwest and winning Santa Barbara and like just playing like dozens of film festivals worldwide. But more importantly, uh, it's still being used in educational curriculums and schools and universities all over the world to sort of teach this moment in history, which to me is the greatest gift that I could have given um, and legacy, but for my career, what really happened was UNICEF found, I saw the film, so some, some, the PR team from UNICEF or the marketing team, they loved it, they reached out and they said, hey, we'd love to do some of this kind of storytelling for our initiatives, would you be interested in telling stories about, you know, children, saving children's lives, and I'm like, absolutely, I would, I would be honored, you know. And so that sort of embarked on this journey of, of making a series of documentaries for UNICEF's initiatives in the Central American Northern Triangle, and Tapachula, and Mexico, about asylum seekers. You know, we also went to um, Jamaica and made a film about essentially violence against women and gang violence. They are a series of paired films, and that is where our strange Hollywood story connects. Um, I was on the island of Jamaica. We had just wrapped these two short documentaries that were basically about as like dark a subject as you could go. And um, the producer was this incredible, like, young woman from Los Angeles, and she uh, had a great time on this project and basically said, hey, look, I'd really love to introduce you to my sister's fiance. He works in the film industry. And it really was like that tenuous of a specific Hollywood connection. And I met him, I kind of rolled my eyes, and I assumed that he probably shot weddings like we did. But I said, yeah, sure, like, totally connect us. Like, and I ended up getting on an email chain with him, found out he was like pretty young. And then we ended up getting on the phone and just like hitting it off right away. And he's sort of like, what are you working on? So I sent him two scripts, one of which was that script Ryan and I wrote together. And uh, I think there's a saying, Ryan, get in here with me on this one. It's like, you know, luck is opportunity yeah. meets preparation. You know, that's really mm -hmm. what I felt like in this situation where it's like we had done the work. We'd written this script and we were really proud of this script. And so when I found myself in this strange like hi, I'm a manager in Hollywood. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't know what a manager does. We didn't have agents. We didn't have managers. We didn't have like an uncle that we could call to pick up the phone and like get us that Hollywood meeting. We didn't have those relationships. And so anyway, we sent him the scripts and I didn't hear anything for two weeks. And I was like, screw this guy. Like, I don't, I don't like you anyway. I didn't want that. I didn't want to go to Hollywood anyway. And then I get a phone call on like a random blocked number because he was calling from the office. And it was Sam Warren who became our manager. And he was like, dude, I loved your scripts. Like, when can you be in Los Angeles? And um, two weeks later, I had a project out there for a commercial. We had lunch. And then just like everything just started happening after that. This is December. And we basically went and loaded that script into a shotgun over the holidays. And they just sent it to like every executive and blasted it out all over Hollywood. Uh, and we ended up having about like 75 meetings over the course of six weeks, just like back to back to back, just meeting producers and actors and directors. And it was like such a wonderful time. This is pre-COVID. You could actually like go, we remember driving on the Paramount lot for the first time and just being like, wow, the water tower. Like it was just such a great, there was a lot of Hollywood magic, you know, in that time period. And I can say like we, we didn't have any connections. I'm not from Los Angeles. We didn't know anybody. And so we really got this incredible sort of welcome to town. Uh, and in that time period, you know, one of those many meetings was with Nate Moore over at um, Marvel Studios. And he's just, you know, right away, he, we just hit it off. He's just a really smart guy, one of the smartest producers we've ever met. But most importantly, like he was just really passionate about telling stories. You could tell it was his whole life.
And so he was working on a little movie at the time called Black Panther. We had never even heard of it. Like we didn't know what it was going to be. Nobody did. And um, yeah, and then we just, you know, we ended up selling the spec script to Netflix and winning the blacklist with Ruin. And it was just this incredible sort of year-long rodeo that sort of culminated in sitting down again with Nate and Kevin over at Marvel Studios. Um, that's the next man. So many things I want to, I have so many questions running through yeah. my head there. Cause we breeze by it, dude. it, but there's so many moments in there. I, I want to go back real quick to, uh, that moment where you decide to, to write this script with, with, with your cousin, Ryan. So you, you, you essentially call Ryan, is this correct? And you, you ask him to, to join you on the script. Is this an idea that you already had or is did you think, oh, I'm going to come up an idea with, with Ryan and, and we're going to collab on this? Yeah, story. I mean, Ryan and I had this unofficial collaboration like our whole lives. You know, he'd been sending me script. I'd read his scripts. I'd read like, you know, chapters of his book, although he thinks he didn't, but I'm pretty sure I have. And I just like read all, and I'd also been sending him um, like, you know, my own screenplays and my outlines and sort of just like getting notes from him because he was just the best writer I knew that I also happened to be related to. And so the whole journey for us was like, I actually had been working with my roommate in college at the time. We'd written like three movies and had a lot of fun doing that. And that was just a great process of like sitting in a room and writing an entire script in six weeks. Like I knew that I could do it. And I knew that if I sat down and just like, you just, we literally would just like disappear. We would like unplug from life and write movies. And we literally wrote like, yeah, two movies in three months. And it was just insane. So I knew that you could do it, but, and those scripts were, I have a lot of love for those. And they were an incredible education, you know, writing just, that's what I would say. Like, I've been using a toilet my whole life, but I don't know how to plumb a whole house. And a lot of people have been watching movies their whole lives and they just assume naturally like, oh, I can write a movie from scratch. Like in my first movie I write will be great. Um, and that's just not, <laughs> it's not the process. You have to fail to succeed. And I think that's really important for all writers is like fail and fail often, fail early, you know? And so when you get into those positions that are critical, mission critical, you can do great work. You can be in that great position. Um, so with this project, you know, I had had refuge, I had documentaries floating around and I knew I was sort of at this place where I'm like, no one's going to give me that great script to go make. They're not going to give me a hundred million dollars. They're not going to say like, oh, you were so cool. You made great documentaries. Like here's a hundred million dollars, like go make this movie. And so I sort of realized like we had to make a story, write a script, you know, that we could tell ourselves. And so it was sort of, it was a new, it was a more sophisticated film, it was more adult. My roommate had moved to LA, I was still living in New York, and I had this just sort of this world, you know, like a character of image and a world of a former SS officer, like an ex-Nazi, six months after the end of World War II. And it was just a sort of this, that, that was the conflict, you know, I, I had never seen a character in that space, in that way, in that time period. Ryan and I are both... Um, half French, our dads are French. And so our, our you know, our great grandparents, our grandparents came to America from France during World War II. Like we're Americans because of the war. And so we have a lot of connection to that time period. Ryan's dad would take us to like literally Omaha beach on family vacations, you know, like go to World War II, like battle sites and stuff. And to this day, he's still a huge buff, you know, on his World War II history, as am I and Ryan. And it was just a time period we knew we had never seen before, you know? And so the film itself ruined for context, it's available online. You go on Google Ruin Blacklist script, you could go read it. But it was essentially, we wanted to tell a story for like a hundred million dollars. You could shoot with two actors in the woods. That's like, that's where it began. And so we set out to tell that story and it's about a former SS officer, like an ex-Nazi 
who's determined to atone for his crimes during the war by hunting down and killing all the members of his old death squad. And along the way, he meets the survivor of one of his camps. And she's the only one who knows where his commanding officer is hiding. And he has no choice but to take her along on this like, blood-soaked journey of revenge. And so it's like literally like an SS officer and a, and a Jewish survivor on a motorcycle driving through the ruins of Germany after the end of the war. It's like a Western. It's a revenge story. It's very dark. It's very adult. It's, it, it Sounds badass. Is, it is. It's a, and that's the thing. It's this incredible mix of really Ryan as an author and me as an author. It's like I really come at things from like world and – uh, like stakes, you know, bigger stakes, world mythology and rules. Uh, and Ryan really comes at it as an internal conflict writer, you know, uh, the character journey, the themes, and, and, and sort of we meet somewhere in the middle where you have these like clearly genre concepts where the movie is very clear, but they're wrapped around, I think, a very human and soulful, uh, at least I like to think so, um, heart you know of what the movie's about and so that is really that first script and i had shot in the czech republic i knew they had the costumes you could shoot it in the forest and if you read that draft you know it's like it's under 90 pages it's like 88 pages long it has mostly two actors and most of the scenes are in the woods with a few sequences you know where there's action and a little bit of like scale and scope and so that was really the dance uh, and we wrote it with no agents and no managers. And how, how do you guys technically like technically write this thing to, together as a duo? Because I mean, are you writing a scene and then uh, Ryan, you're coming in and, 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 and kind of rewriting or are you writing it together in the room at the same time? Ryan, you, can you take that one? Yeah. Yeah. We, um, so with Ruin, we just went to this cabin in the woods in, in Northern California and we basically just unplugged from everything for about 10 days. And you know, we got all these groceries and just loaded up. And then it was just us uh, in a room together for, for these 10 days. And we did nothing except uh, write, eat, and then watch movies that were in the same kind of spirit of what we were writing. Um, and that was just like, it was like, uh, you know, rinse, slather, repeat or whatever, every day, the same thing. And so, and so the actual writing process would be, yes, us in a room. And there's this really great writing software called uh, Writer Duets, which is basically like Google Docs for screenwriting, where we could both be in the same room on separate computers and writing in real time. And you can see what the other person is writing as they're writing it. And so, yeah, generally we would um, card the whole movie out. And so we'd have cards up on, uh, you know, on the wall. And then we would be attacking uh, separate scenes, like saying like, I'm going to take that scene and you take that scene. And then we just kind of, uh work for an hour and then he reads my scene and i read his scene and we talk about it and then make adjustments um and when we wrote ruin it was just like so uh fluid that we were just all yeah like every, we were just all writing on every scene all together um in the end and it's hard to even say like what who wrote what and, and how it actually came out because it was really was a real kind of mind meld on that one um we're just like, yeah, we just, we disappeared basically into the, into the story. And, and then, you know, just like I said before about like how everything is now chasing the feeling of um, making those movies with my friends in the backyard. Like now every script is kind of like chasing the feeling of writing ruin of just trying to get back into that, into that mind meld that we, that we found. That's just really kind of magical creative place. Yeah. That's beautiful, yeah. dude. And, and let's, I mean, damn, man, I wish I had more time with, and, and since we're doing a duet here, it's tough, dude, but I, I, I there's so many things that I want to get into, man. Cause it's so interesting to me, uh, kind of, you know, the creative process as it is, is very tough, dude. 
and getting a collaborator like you guys have is such a beautiful thing, man. And then the fact that your family is like insane to me. Um, but uh, what what ends up happening? So you guys make the blacklist. Now you have uh, Kaz, like you said, 75 meetings in. And what was it? Six weeks or three weeks, whatever it was, is insane. Yeah. yeah. Um, what what headspace are you guys in at this point? Because, I mean, you wrote this little thing in the cabin in the woods and then now yeah. you're. Yeah, I got to add to that, too, a little bit, because I would one thing that I don't talk about that much. But right before ruin, like in the towards the end of 2016. Yeah, that's when it was right at the end of 2016, because ruin went out in 2017. Yeah, because we won the blacklist in 2017. So, yeah, it was the end of 2016. And it was sort of like, you know, just holistically speaking, it was a little bit of a dark time for the empire, you know, with uh, with the, the election and such. And, and and for me personally, I was in a, like a really rough uh, place where I was hitting a lot of walls with filmmaking. And I just had my uh, first child, actually, our daughter was just born um, in 2015. And so I was at a place in my life where I was just like, man, I don't even know if I can even do this anymore. Like, it's just not really working out. And now I have a kid to take care of. And it was really just like reaching a point of sort of a uh, breaking point, you know? And then, um, cause we had written ruin earlier and it was like kind of just sitting around for a little while while we were just thinking about what to do with it. And then it found Sam through total happenstance. So when he kind of came online, um, and, and basically ignited that fire for us at the beginning of 2017, I was in a place where I just thought like I was going to have to like quit filmmaking, you know? Um, wow. so it really was a totally like life changing, event and i remember talking to people like the year before and being like man if i don't start getting some like attention from this town you know because la is a it's a hard place to be if you're working in film and you're not getting anywhere because it's just like it's around you everywhere and you have friends who are just like oh i just had a meeting with so and so and um i got this pitch sold and blah 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 and it, get, it makes it just harder to be around that and so i was like really in this place like man i just i need if i don't get some attention from this town like i'm just gonna have to I don't know, we're gonna move to Wyoming or something. And um, and then and then it just was a total like like a light switch, you know. Like we like Kaz said, we just went out and had like these 75 meetings in like five weeks and we were just meeting everybody and it was just like an incredibly exciting time because it was also pre-COVID, obviously. So we were going on to the lots and there was just so much um buzz. And we would do like, you know, five general meetings in a day and um just be running all over town and grabbing lunch when we could. And it was just like a really super, it was just a really exciting time. And um, and the really great thing is that in all those general meetings, uh, everyone was very positive about Ruin, but we also had that golden answer of like, what is the next thing? Because we were at the time writing our next spec script, was a, which was a script called Mimi from Rio. And so we kind of got to hype that thing up while we were going out um, for all these meetings. And so we finally finished that script um, towards the end of the year and so we ended up selling this that script as a spec to Netflix and then winning the blacklist like uh, the same week, basically. And so wow. it was just like this like fairy tale year that just everything just kind of like fell into place and everything worked out. And it was a complete total turnaround from where I was the year before. I hear you, Ryan, man. I, I'm an actor and, and uh, I just had a kid, too. Uh, 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 she's nine months now. Congratulations. Um, and dude, and, and I had yeah. and I had like kind of my little big break uh, uh, on TV, yep. like uh, uh, four months after I found out she was going to be um, uh, born. So, dude, it, it, you know, I, I totally connect with what you're saying, man, of just that, that desperation sometimes in our business of like, yeah. I got to make it. And then 
you know, but what about the life side? Right. And if you want to have a family and you want to do those things, um, it's just incredibly tough, dude. But it's it's beautiful to hear, you know, that 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 there's these success stories within that kind of chaos of what this career can be. Um, so tell me about how Marvel comes into the picture. Is that is that shortly after that or, or how does it how does that work? Yeah, I mean, you, you it's a, we had that sit down, you know, you sat down with him and you make that relationship. And I would just say to like people listening, it's like Hollywood is like a small group of people talking about movies, you know, the same way you made movies with your friends or movies in college or movies in whatever high school. Like it's like that just on a slightly bigger scale, but like deep down, it really is just people sitting around in rooms. I mean, talking about movies. Um, and that's one of the beautiful things about it. So we had already sat down and had that relationship about six, seven months later, we get the call and it was Nate and he's like, Hey, we have a, a project I'd love to talk to you about, you know, if you're interested. And we went in and he had this 700 page PDF document that was every mention of the Eternals ever in a comic book uh, in all time. And we had a great conversation about what it could be, what it shouldn't be, what we were interested in, why we love the material. And he gave us this document and said, Hey, come back in a month and pitch us a movie. And that's basically what we did. We went to Ryan's office where he is right now. Just picked, you know, there's a hundred Eternals. We picked 10 of them. And we sort of broke down the story. Like, what is the story about? What is the theme, the through line? Like, where are we going to go? You know, what's the structure? How is this movie going to work, basically? And we went back and sat down in a room and basically pitched Kevin and Lou, the co-presidents of Marvel Studios, and just told them a movie for like 90 minutes straight. Like, just this happens, and then this happens, and then Icarus comes down, and Cersei changes this bus into flowers and all this crazy shit, you know? Yeah. And then they all sat there kind of poker faced and they, they thanked us for our time. And then we left and we we're just like, man, like I have no idea like what happened. I don't know what to expect. We don't know, you know, is it, are we getting fired? Are they ever going to talk to us again? Did we do it? Are we winning? You know, and then about a week later we got a call from our team and they're like, you guys are writing a Marvel movie. Oh my God. Um, and yeah. Great. It was definitely a great week. Yeah, it was, it was for sure a life-changing moment. I think we appreciated that at the time and have ever since. You know, we're very grateful for the opportunity, but we're also very grateful for, like, this particular opportunity. I mean, I think Eternals is a very special film. It's very, very different. It's very out there. It's very weird. It's very unique, you know, and I think in this day and age to make, like, a hard sci-fi you know, no spoilers, but like a movie with space gods and immortality takes place over 7,000 years. There's tiny gods inside of planets. I mean, there's, there's no movie you can watch to reference that. Right. You know, you're like, oh, how did the other like 7,000 year old space god epic love story do it? You're like, that doesn't exist. We were making it up. I mean, there's nothing like it. So we really try to do justice to like the true gonzo craziness of Jack Kirby's like original worlds. We really wanted to, you know, give give him the ultimate homage and he's so responsible for so much of the stuff in the MCU that audiences love. And this is sort of our love letter to him in many ways and his creations. Um, and we just wanted to do something really special and different. And then we have a lot of ourselves in the film. I minored in classics and archeology span in college. So like studying the ancient world, studying the old gods, you know, working in an archeological dig in Egypt, all those things found their way. Uh, into Eternals in so many ways. So yeah, it's for sure. It, it's a journey. You know, you write dozens of drafts over years, um, and then you know, then it becomes a movie, and you kind of give it to the world, and then audiences they they do their thing with it. Right? How how were you guys uh, before the film came out? I mean, that to me just sounds like the most nerve wracking thing ever. I mean, because one thing is you make a movie that 
uh, is going to be at a film festival. And, you know, some people might see it. But another thing completely, dude, is making a Marvel movie where millions and millions of people are going to see it. So how do you deal with that, man, as creatives, dude? Because you got to have an armor up a little bit, right? I mean, you can't just be. So so tell me a little about that. Yeah, I mean, I say that I I had a little bit of. I mean, well, okay, no, nobody has real preparation for that until you go through it. But when I did make the that race full, the the online poker documentary, that movie was just like incredibly well known and incredibly popular within the community. So I was like in this little bubble. Obviously, that's much smaller than the world. But the movie was really, really um, widely watched and heavily criticized and heavily uh, discussed in that world. So I kind of already had experience of like basically the online army sort of coming after you. But um, but then in terms of like pre- preparing um, for this release, you know, um, like when we were writing it, I didn't really think about that very much at all, quite frankly, because like that's something that Marvel is really good at is sort of insulating you from the giant machinery and all the kind of like the external pressure, basically, and um, just helping you just focus completely on the story itself. So throughout the process of writing, I was, we were just really just thinking about like, how do we make this story better? And just thinking about, uh, about it as a script. And then, um, you know, and then they went off to shoot it. And then there was the pandemic. So it was like about, um, it was about like two years basically um, later when they finally started having like edits that they could show. And then when the release date was secured. So we had, had had a long time to kind of like come to some sort of uh, peace, I guess, um, with that, uh, with, um with the scope of it all um but but yeah since since it's come out it's it's just been really exciting you know it's been really amazing to basically make a movie that connects with that many people and to have you know so many people come out of the woodwork from from our past and just say that they love the movie and they they saw the movie that's that's been been really really incredible and um and also just being um a part of the culture in the way that Star Wars was a part of the culture for me when I was a kid, you know, that's just a really exciting kind of full circle thing that speaks to just sort of like the the circle of of, of film, I guess we'll say. I don't, you know, maybe the, <laughs> that's not a perfect analogy, but um, but yeah, it's a it's a kind of a, yeah, it's it's really exciting. And and now having kids, I have my daughter hasn't seen the movie yet, but I know that you know in a few years, because um, like it'll be a long time before she could ever see a movie like Ruin. But now to have made a movie that is more accessible to to my kids and that they can connect with um, at an earlier age, that's also really exciting to me as a creator. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. That is beautiful. Um, I I think I got to get you guys out of here, but I have one final question, man. So um, we're going to have a lot of people who are listening who might have, you know, uh, a documentary that they want to shoot or a film or something like that. I want I would like a, a bit of a it's a bit of a technical question, but what camera? All right. What kind of gear would you recommend to somebody who's really kind of guerrilla style trying to shoot something? Um, are there are there non-negotiables of something like, yo, no, we need this for sure. And and being guys that that did uh, that did these kind of documentaries, I would like to hear some of that. I am happy to get granular. I used to run a commercial production company, so like I, I used to own a lot of gear. And I once upon a time, I loved gear. Um, and I'm going to say something that people are going to hate, and I'm just going to lean into it because I think it's pretty true. Like in 2021, I like fundamentally believe if you have an iPhone, like you're good. 
like the, the apps, the tool, it sounds crazy. Like I've owned so many cameras. I used to own a red, I sold that, like I've been everywhere, but like genuinely, like you're not, you're competing with TikTok now. Like every Netflix is in direct competition with TikTok for people's attention. So it's not about how well something looks. It's about how good the storytelling is. Like that's the tool. That's what you need to hone as an artist. And that's something that people will always pay you for. It's the most valuable thing. You know, if you get into the gear game and you start, you know, buying and flipping Sony's into reds and all that stuff, like you get into a trap because you're paying off these tools. An iPad looks great. You can edit on there. You can do effects on there. I mean, if I'm going to be really granular, there's a camera that I personally own that I think is I've had it for seven years. I love it. You can shoot a documentary on it. You can take nice pictures. I don't work for them, so I'm not plugging it, but I think the Sony A7R series is just a really solid tool. It's not tremendously expensive as far as professional cameras go, especially in 2021. I think you get it for like under two grand for like everything. And that's a camera I've literally had for seven years, you know, and I've used it for everything from documentaries in the Kingdom of Bhutan with WWF to like taking pictures of my dad you know, my cat. So it's a useful tool. It's not crazy expensive. You can shoot something that looks beautiful on it. But I, I swear, no jokes aside, like an iPhone in 2021, it's a very powerful tool. And, and you could shoot in a killer documentary on it, you know, and like go to your, like, it's the story that you got to find that's special. You know, you want to make a documentary, take your iPhone and a light and a microphone and then go and, and you know, do something new, something you haven't seen before and do something that matters. Um, it doesn't matter how beautiful it is, if it is, if it's a really powerful and compelling tale. Yeah. Ryan, do yeah, you have I, anything to add to that? Well, I've been out of the gear game for quite a while now and things happen really fast. Um, uh, so I, I'm like, I'm just out of the loop, but I, yeah, Sony cameras are, are really great for all arounds. The only thing I'll say that's maybe like some helpful advice is I think that you should use prime lenses if you can, you know, uh, I think using prime lenses and fixed focal lengths just make you a better shooter because you have to kind of move around and think about the composition more. And if with a zoom lens, you know, you just kind of, it makes you a little bit lazy where you can just kind of punch in and stuff like that. So, so whatever camera system you use, um, try to get yourself maybe like, uh, you know, a wide angle and a tele prime and have that be your setup. And I think that it'll, it'll just force you to find more interesting compositions. Awesome, man, guys. Um, it's been a pleasure, you know, chatting with you and getting to know you guys a little bit here. Um, I'm so happy for you, man, for the both of you. Uh, this this thing, this uh, this business isn't easy, man. And to see, you know, good people like yourselves making it and and making it in a, in a big way um, is really beautiful to see, man. And it's inspiring. So thank you guys for for coming on. Thanks, Robbie. Dude, we feel the same way. And also, congratulations. We're big fans of Heels, and we love Mike Waldron. Um, we got a lot of love for him. So glad to hear you guys got season two, and we're pumped to see Hell it. yeah, man. Let's do it. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you. Peace, Robbie. Peace. Have a great day, man. Talk soon. Later. This episode was brought to you in part by TSMA Consulting, the entertainment industry's leading social media firm. If you sign up for any of their management packages at tsmaconsulting.com, make sure to tell them Robbie sent you for an exclusive 15% off the first month. Thank me later.